Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Just Human number 208. This is the Durham Report part five, I believe. Yes, part five. Um, I did record, if you missed it, I did record an episode um, of reading this on Saturday, I think it was. So if you're behind, that's that's why. Um, I was telling BB I've put in like nine plus hours of reading the Durham Report since it came out, uh, like reading it on the air in addition to reading it off air. And um, I can't believe all these nerds are so interested in it. And uh, I'm thankful for it, though. And I think that what I thought Shika G, good morning, Shika. I saw that you said that this is the primary source crowd. And I really like that. I think that's, um, I mean, I don't know how applicable, applicable that is to everybody here, but I I really like that description of this crew that shows up for this read. It's particularly the crew that shows up for the reading of the Durham report. Uh, we want to get it directly from the source. We want to know exactly what the report says. We're going to inform ourselves and make our, draw our own conclusions about what this report represents and what it means. And uh, of course, factoring in the other, what other people say, but we're going to arrive at our own conclusions. And the best way to do that is to go to the source material. So um, good morning. And thank you for being here. If you did miss um, any of the other parts of this that I've been doing, that's okay. Um, I don't expect everybody to spend all these hours listening to someone read this report. But um, if you miss some, that's okay because this next we're starting, we're stopping at one section and then picking back up at another the next section. And you'll still learn some stuff. If you're interested in this, just stick around. You don't have to be, you don't have to have caught all the parts of this. Um before I get into the report, I need to tell um, all of you that um, this week is my youngest kid's last week of preschool. Um, today and then Wednesday are his last days of preschool for this semester. Um, so he'll be out on Friday. So I'm not planning on doing a Friday morning show because I'm going to have him. And um, that means that I'm going to be on summer schedule starting next week. And I haven't exactly decided what my summer schedule will be. Um, I really, I really know. And last year I, I switched to streaming in the evenings and I liked that, but last year there wasn't Badlands Media. And I mean, I don't feel like it's a rule that I can't, I mean, of course I can stream at the same time that they're streaming on Badlands Media, just like I am right now, but we do share the same audience. And so um, I hate asking the audience to choose between things, although I don't really mind have, asking y'all to choose between me and John on, in the mornings. I mean, y'all are obviously you're going to choose me over John in the morning. So trying to decide what my summer schedule will be. Um, I may do, I may have no choice but to just do evening streams. Uh, because it just makes the most sense with me having both my boys at home in the summer. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. I just know that next week it's going to be a change and um, uh, we'll try to I'll try to figure out what to do. It, it, switching the evenings does make the most sense. Um, and that may be the only thing I can do, which I know that that puts some of y'all in a bind. But um, it would be a night show. I would just switch. Last summer, what I did was I just switched to 9.30 p.m. instead of 9.30 a.m. And um, that's that's the most likely scenario. All right. If you guys are enjoying this, if you 
are benefiting from this and you want to support what I do, the best way is to like the show over on Rumble and share it. That's number one. The next best way is to go to my Substack, justhuman.substack.com and sign up for a free subscription. But then the best way to support the show beyond that is to sign up for a paid subscription on Substack. That is the number one way to support what I do um, as far as if you want to contribute, justhuman.substack.com. Also, bensonhoneyfarms.com. Get yourself some delicious raw honey directly from the beekeepers. Go to bensonhoneyfarms.com. Use rep code JUSTHUMAN. You can also get yourself some soap, some candy, some barbecue sauce, all sorts of things over here at bensonhoneyfarms.com. I love all of their products. And finally, Red White Bourbon 45 is where my merch is at. If you're interested in some merch, if you want to support the show, but you kind of want something in return, go to redwhitebourbon45.com, pick yourself out a mug, a shirt, whatever you're interested in. All right, today we are on page 123 of the actual report. But if you're using the PDF from justice.gov, justice.gov it's you can just type in 133 up here um and that's the page we're on i see some of y'all watched defected last night <laughs> it still blows my mind that roadhouse and dirty dancing aren't the same movie <laughs> but some somehow in my brain between ages eight and 14, those those two things became the exact same movie, and they've been the same movie, movie in my head up until last night. <laughs> uh, that was a fun show last night. A lot of laughs. Which is good. Which is good. That's, that's one of my favorite things about uh, Defected on Sunday nights, is we end up we end up laughing quite a bit, and then we also end up you know, sometimes making some serious points. Sometimes we get serious, um, you know, and deep. But then sometimes we're just so surface and silly. It was so much fun. All right. All right, let's get into this. This is going to be page 123 is where we're starting the bottom of it. The steel reports are included in the page FISA application. As discussed in greater detail below, four steel reports... 2016 080, 2016 94, 2016 095, and 2016 102 were relied on by the FBI to support the probable cause in the initial page FISA application and three renewals of that application. Before the receipt of the Steele reports, the FBI did not believe there was sufficient probable cause to apply for a FISA warrant against Page. Although the FBI had reason to believe that the Steele reports were opposition research documents commissioned by a law firm and that the candidate's campaign who hired the firm was aware of the Steele reports, there is nothing in the FBI record to show that this was a consideration or subject of debate prior to the use of the Steele information in the initial FISA application targeting page. Moreover, not a single substantive allegation pulled from the steel reports and used in the initial page FISA application had been corroborated by the time of the FISA submission, or indeed, to our knowledge, has ever been corroborated by the FBI. 
we have a footnote here to the special counsel office's interview of Brian Otten. And it says, notwithstanding his this lack of corroboration, the three FISA renewal applications on page continued to use the Steele reporting to support probable cause. The FBI obtained a total of four FISC orders targeting Page, which authorized intrusive electronic surveillance of Page and physical searches of certain items in, of his property from October 2016 through September 2017. Each of the FISA applications set forth the FBI's basis for believing that Page was knowingly engaged in clandestine intelligence activities on behalf of Russia or knowingly helping others in such activities and alleged, based in part on the Steele reports, that Page was part of a, quote, well-developed conspiracy of cooperation between Trump's campaign and the Russian government. Steele Report 2016-095. Two, Page allegedly met in July 2016 with Igor Sechin, chairman of Russian energy conglomerate Rosneft, and Igor Devekian, a senior official in the Russian presidential administration. That would, that's in Steel Report 2016-94. Three, the Kremlin had years, had for years, gathered compromising information on Clinton. Steel Report 2016-080. And four, Russia had leaked DNC emails to WikiLeaks. An idea... An idea concocted by Page and others, Steel Report 2016-102. As discussed above, in late September 2016, OI Attorney 1 received a copy of a draft request to prepare a FISA application targeting Page from Kleinsmith. OI Attorney 1 informed the office that his subsequent primary responsibility was to, quote, wordsmith the application and to gather information regarding sources. In this regard, OI Attorney 1 primarily worked with Case Agent 1 and Kleinsmith. OI Attorney 1 also told the office that he was not aware of the fact that a previous draft application had been prepared by the FBI prior to the receipt of the Steele reports, which OGC determined lacked sufficient probable cause to move forward. As discussed above, with respect to the initial application, FBI OGC Unit Chief 1 told the office that she believed that the initial application was, quote, a close call, but needed more information to meet the probable cause standard. FBI OGC Unit Chief 1 stated that the inclusion of the Steele reporting allowed the FBI to clear the probable cause hurdle in the Page FISA application, and therefore FBI OGC Unit Chief 1 approved the transmission of the request to OI. Looking at this footnote, that's 686. Okay, we haven't gotten to that one yet. Saw someone saying I'm late. I'm not late. I'm live right now. What are y'all talking about? <laughs> I think somebody needs to refresh. All right. Um, FBI OGC Unit Chief 1 informed the office in sum, that she had no concerns with the inclusion of the Steele reporting in the Page FISA application. FBI OGC Unit Chief 1, however, was not aware of what, if any, vetting had been done regarding the allegations prior to the submission of the initial application to FISA. Just checking to make sure everybody refreshed. 
That is one thing about Rumble is sometimes you have to refresh to notice that it's gone live. It'll just stay on the 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 screen like like uh, the thumbnail, even though the channel's gone live. Okay. Finally, FBI OGC Unit Chief One told the office that there was some concern that Steele had been hired by a law firm on behalf of the Clinton campaign and the DNC to conduct opposition research on Trump. Despite these concerns, the fact that Steele's information was being financed by the DNC and or the Clinton campaign was not included in the affidavit's source description of Steele. The failure to provide this information to the FISC was a major omission in that the information clearly had the potential to affect the analysis of any bias in the Steele reporting. Um... 686 footnote. A footnote in the FISA application did describe the person who Steele hired. It says this person, quote, never advised Steele as to the motivation behind the research into Trump's ties to Russia. It went on to say, quote, the FBI speculates that the person was likely looking for information that could be used to discredit Trump's campaign. However, as noted above at page 111, Prior to the submission of the initial page FISA application, the FBI, in fact, knew Steele had told Holding Agent 1, or Handling Agent 1, that Fusion GPS had hired him by a law firm, and that this ultimate client was senior Democrats, quote-unquote, supporting Clinton. Moreover, it knew that Handling Agent 1's notes of this meeting reflect that, according to Steele, Hillary Clinton was aware of Steele's reporting. With respect to the Steele report allegations in the initial FISA application, OI Attorney 1 told the office that he did not think the FBI was initially concerned with corroborating Steele's reporting, although he recalled that at some point some unknown efforts had been made. Rather than corroborating the allegations, OI Attorney 1 recalled that the FBI's primary focus was on Steele's past reliability as a FBI CHS. In his interview with the office, Case Agent 1 also noted the importance of Steele's past reliability as reason to include his, his Steele's, reporting in the FISA application, but also stated in some that it was essential for the FBI to corroborate the Steele reporting to include verification of Steele's alleged subsources. To that end, the office directly asked Case Agent 1 whether any of Steele's allegations contained in the initial FISA application had been corroborated. Case Agent 1 stated that, quote, he could not recall anything specific that was fully corroborated. Shockingly, Case Agent 1 told the office that the initial FISA application targeting Page was being done in the hope that the returns would, quote, self-corroborate. Interesting. In any event, over time, and as discussed in more detail below, the FBI did attempt to investigate VET and analyzed the steel reports, but ultimately was not able to confirm or corroborate any of the substantive allegations. Notwithstanding these obvious infirmities, the FBI and the department included these allegations in all four page FISA applications, including two applications after Steele's primary subsource, Igor Danchenko, had been identified, interviewed by the FBI, and was not able to provide corroboration for any of the allegations he provided to Steele. To that end, as discussed more fully below, OI Unit Chief 1 was, a, was aware that the primary subsource had been identified and interviewed by the FBI, but OI Unit Chief 1 only later learned that serious questions arose from those January 2017 interviews of Danchenko concerning the reliability of his information, as well as apparent contradictions with Steele's reports. 
In OI Unit Chief One's opinion, he doubted that NSD, the National Security Division, would have supported subsequent renewals of the page surveillance had the FBI made it fully aware of the disconnect between Steele's reporting and the FBI's interviews of Danchenko. Eight, the FBI identifies Steele's primary subsource. During October 3rd, 2016 Rome meeting, Steele informed FBI personnel that his reporting was primarily generated by a single subsource who, in turn, relied on his own network of subsources to gather information. Steele stated that his primary subsource traveled freely in Russia and appeared to be well-connected. Steele, however, however, would not provide the FBI with the name of his primary subsource. In late December 2016, the FBI determined that Igor Danchenko, a U.S.-based Russian national living in Washington, Washington D.C., was Steele's primary source. Notwithstanding this fact, the FBI and the department did not correct in the final two FISA applications targeting Page the characterization of the primary subsource as being, quote, Russia-based. Next part, Igor Danchenko. From 2005 through 2010, Igor Danchenko worked as an analyst at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., where he focused primarily on Russian and Eurasian geopolitical and economic matters. Danchenko came to be employed at Brookings after writing two Brookings Senior Fellows, Brookings Fellow 1 and Brookings Fellow 2, while a student at the University of Louisville. Through that connection, I bet I'm supposed to say Louisville. Through that connection, Danchenko was hired as a research assistant to Brookings Fellow 2. In approximately 2010, Brookings Fellow 1 introduced Danchenko to Christopher Steele. In 2011, Steele retained Danchenko as a contractor for his London-based firm, Orbis Business Intelligence. Looking at footnotes real quick. In his work for Orbis, Danchenko focused primarily on Russian and Eurasian business risk assessment and geopolitical analysis. As discussed above, beginning in June 2016, Steele using information provided primarily by Danchenko Began to compile the draft and dr- began to compile and draft the steel reports containing unsubstantiated allegations of illicit ties between Trump and the Russian government. As discussed in more detail below, from January 2017 through October 2020, and as part of its efforts to determine the truth or falsity of specific information in the steel reports, the FBI conducted multiple interviews of Danchenko regarding, among other things, the allegations that he provided to Steele that ultimately formed the core of the Steele reports. During these extensive interviews, Danchenko was unable to provide the FBI with corroborating evidence for any of the substantive allegations contained in the Steele reports. In fact, Danchenko claimed that the Ritz-Carlton allegation he provided to Steele were nothing more than, quote, rumor and speculation, and that most of the information he gathered for Steele was the product of casual conversation with people in his social circle, including those parts of the Steele reports used in the page FISA applications. During the course, all right, part 10, Danchenko's employment at Danchenko Employer 1 and payments by Steele and others. During the course of its investigation, the office gathered evidence related to the unusual process through which Steele paid Danchenko over the course of his work for Orbis. 
a brief recitation, recitation of those facts is included below. As discussed above, Danchenko informed the FBI during his January 2017 interviews that, in approximately 2011, he began conducting work for Steele's firm, Orbis Business Intelligence. Danchenko worked, described his work with Steele as a, quote, side project, in addition to his employment in the United States at a Virginia-based venture capital firm. I wonder what, I wonder where that was. I wonder which firm Danchenko worked for. If I ever found, if I've ever come across it, I don't remember it. In approximately 2014, Danchenko ceased working for the venture capital firm following the firm's bankrupts, declaration of bankruptcy. Okay. According to Danchenko, at the time of its bankruptcy, the firm was in the process of sponsoring Danchenko's visa application to remain in the United States. Following this development, Danchenko reached out to an acquaintance in the United States who operated Danchenko Employer One, a Virginia-based information technology staffing firm. Danchenko stated in sum that he was seeking employment at Employer One in order to extend his visa and remain in the United States. Orbis, due to its United Kingdom-based registration, was unable to sponsor Danchenko in furtherance of his work visa application. According to Danchenko, the principal of Employer One informed Danchenko that he would hire him on the condition that Danchenko would be compensated by an outside source. In essence, Employer One would hire Danchenko to assist with his immigration status, but not fund his salary. Danchenko informed Steele about this arrangement, and Steele agreed to pay, Danch- to pay Employer One for the work that Danchenko was conducting on behalf of Orbis. During his January 2017 interviews with the FBI, Danchenko described Employer One as a, quote, contract vehicle, through which Danchenko would be paid for his work on behalf of Orbis. Put plainly, Employer One was merely a front to allow Danchenko to continue his work on behalf of Orbis, while at the same time allowing him to secure a work visa through alleged employment with a U.S.-based company. As relevant to this investigation, Employer One Executive One, an ethnic Russian, described Danchenko as someone who was, quote, boastful, having low credibility, and a person who liked to embellish his purported contacts with the Kremlin. The office's investigation discovered that Orbis, through a separate New Jersey-based company, paid Employer One for the work Danchenko performed on behalf of Orbis. In turn, Employer One provided Danchenko with a salary funded by Orbis. By any measure, this was an extremely odd arrangement, given that Danchenko performed no work related to Employer One's primary business purpose, which was the staffing of information technology and engineering contractors. Nevertheless, Employer One ultimately sponsored Danchenko's work visa to remain in the United States. In sworn testimony that Steele provided in litigation in the United Kingdom concerning, among other things, the Steele reports, Steele stated that he paid his sources an average retainer between $3,000 and $5,000 per month. Banking and other records also show that from January 2016 through June 2021, Danchenko received over $436,000 in wire transfers from European businesses, including from Orbis and other entities affiliated with Orbis. These money transfers were in addition to the money that Orbis sent through Danchenko Employer One to fund Danchenko's salary.
Good morning, RL Skeeter. Thank you for the rant. They say, I wonder if the Steel Dossier was ever an episode of Law and Order. That's a great question. <laughs> that's a that's a great question. Um E.H. Kyle, I see your comment. Didn't you find out what firm you worked for during the trial? I don't remember. If I if I learned, I forgot. It's possible I learned it and I've just forgotten it. Somebody's surely figured it out by now. See, the prior... Um, one of the things I remember from the Danchenko trial that I learned about Danchenko that I didn't previously know was that in addition to him not leaving the U.S. and staying here was that he divorced his wife on the same day he became a CHS for the FBI or like the day after. Like him becoming a CHS and him ending terminating his marriage happened on this either the same day or within 24 hours or so of one another. And it, it's like the most peculiar thing. Like, did he do that to try and like shield his wife from his work as a CHS or something? Like, did he do that? I don't know. It's, it's just odd to me. And where is his wife? Did she leave the country? Or I don't know. I just, I just thought it was, there's gotta be something to that. Him changing, him changing his marriage, marriage status at the same time he became CHS. All right, next part. The prior counter-espionage investigation of Danchenko and the FBI's failure to account for his possible motivations and allegiance. Danchenko was, known, was a known entity to the FBI in December 2016 when he was identified as Steele's primary subsource. As publicly reported, Danchenko was the subject of an FBI counter-espionage investigation from 2009 to 2011. We got a footnote here. Andrew Desiderio and Kyle Cheney, Steel Dossier Subsource article from Politico. Letter from William Barr. Okay, it's just a citation. No extra commentary. In late 2008, while employed by the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., Danchenko engaged two fellow employees, Researcher 1 and Researcher 2, in a happy hour about whether one of the employees might be willing to or able in the future to provide classified information in exchange for money. Researcher 1 was a research fellow for an influential foreign policy advisor who was about to enter the Obama administration. Uh, that would be, what's, uh, what's her name? She looks like a, a sick man. Like she looks like a man that should be hospitalized. What's her name? She's so ugly. Her name escapes me, but that's who they're talking. That's who they're referring to. I can't, I can't believe I can't think of her name. I can see her and I hate that I can see her. I wish I could just see her name instead of seeing her face. According to a Brookings researcher one, Danchenko believed that he, researcher one, might also enter the Obama administration with the foreign policy advisor and have access to classified information. During this exchange, Danchenko informed Brookings researcher one that he, Danchenko, had access to people. Hill, that's it. Joyful Christian 17. They got it. Yes. Anita Hill. Yes. That's it, right? Hill. Isn't it Anita? I think so. 
Yeah, that ugly lady. All right. No, not E. Jean Carroll. <laughs> According to Brookings Researcher One, Danchenko believed that he, Researcher One, might also enter the Obama administration with the foreign policy advisor and have access to classified information. During this exchange, Danchenko informed Researcher One that he, Danchenko, had access to people who would be willing to pay money for classified information. Fiona, that's it, Fiona, JBA. Anita didn't sound, didn't feel right. It's a, it's Fiona. Fiona Hill, that's it. Yes. Ugh, that's gross. Riley concerned, Researcher One informed a U.S. government contact at an appropriate government agency about his encounter, and the information was subsequently passed to the FBI. It's it's funny how um, evil people have a way of looking like Skeletor. Fiona Hill definitely has that Skeletor look. You know, it's like they either look like 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 Emperor Palpatine Skeletor type look to them. Like they're uh, they 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 should be the bad guy and uh, one of the bad guys in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like Fiona Hill could absolutely just walk onto the set of Raiders of the Lost Ark and be perfectly perfectly like blend in with the evil Nazis in that movie. She looks straight out of it. All right. Anyway, when interviewed by the FBI, researcher one confirmed the details of interaction with Danchenko with respect to his interactions with Danchenko at Brookings. Brookings researcher one described Danchenko as sketchy and suspicious. Interesting. The second Brookings employee researcher two was also interviewed by the FBI while Brookings Researcher 2 did not specifically recollect the events in question, he did harbor suspicions that Denchenko was connected to Russian intelligence. His, his suspicions were based in part on the fact that Denchenko held multiple advanced degrees but continued working as a low-level research assistant at Brookings. The implicit assumption being that Brookings unwittingly provided Denchenko access to information of high value to the Russians, or wittingly. Based on the information provided by Brookings Researcher One, the FBI's Baltimore field office initiated a preliminary espionage investigation into Danchenko. Two Baltimore field office agents led the investigation into Danchenko. So they're going to be Baltimore Case Agent One and Case Agent Two. Brian Otten, who was at the time an intelligence analyst, as opposed to a supervisory intelligence analyst, provided headquarters analytical support to the investigation. The FBI cover, converted its investigation of Danchenko into a, quote, full investigation after learning that Danchenko had, one, had been in, in, identified as an associate of two other FBI espionage subjects, and two, had previous contact with the Russian embassy and known Russian intelligence officers. In particular, the FBI learned that in September 2006, Danchenko informed one Russian intelligence officer that he had an interest in entering the Russian diplomatic service. Four days later, the intelligence officer contacted Danchenko and informed him that they could meet that day to work, quote, on documents and then think about future plans, end quote. In October 2006, Danchenko contacted the intelligence officer, quote, so the documents can be placed in the following day's diplomatic mail pouch. As part of its investigation into Danchenko, the FBI also interviewed several people at Georgetown University who knew Danchenko. 
At the time, Danchenko was attempting to obtain another advanced degree. One person, a U.S. citizen who had recently interned at an intelligence agency, recalled that Danchenko asked her about her knowledge of Russian matters every time he encountered her. On one occasion, Danchenko inquired about the person's knowledge of a specific Russian military matter. There's a footnote and nothing. Okay. That same person stated in sum that Danchenko informed her that he served in the Russian army and worked with rockets, but at the time worked on, quote, special matters. Danchenko also told this person that his Russian passport listed him as GRU, the Russian Military Intelligence Service, because of his language skills. Based on these encounters, the individual believed that Danchenko was working for a Russian intelligence service. I do too. Another Brookings colleague recalled that in 2008, Danchenko informed her that he, Danchenko, had been absent from work at Brookings because he had been in South Ossetia fighting Georgians. Danchenko also bragged to his colleague about vandalizing the Georgian embassy in Belarus. Further, as part of its... this, You know what? These details right here, none of this came out in the Danchenko trial because, like, Durham didn't have a way to get it in. You know, it wasn't... This right here isn't directly relevant to what he was on trial for. Um, so Durham didn't get this these specifics in. But man, it just goes to show that that one agent that Durham got an interview with at the very the last person that he talked to, who was the um who was former military, said that guy is Russian military intelligence. She pecked, she absolutely nailed who Danchenko was and nobody would listen to her. Russian military intelligence, exactly who he is. Further, as part of its espionage investigation, the FBI determined that Danchenko was an associate of two FBI counterintelligence subjects. And you got, and don't miss it that Otten, the guy who, the analyst who would become later, years later, so involved with Danchenko in the Steel Dossier and Crossfire Hurricane, is also an analyst on this original Danchenko counterintelligence case. Brian Otten, who was at the time an intelligence analyst, provided headquarters analytical support to the investigation. So, I remember this, to him being asked about this during the trial. Otten was familiar with Danchenko from way back then. <laughs> PJ says, duh, his haircut gave him away. I, that's, I can't argue that. <laughs> In July 2010, the FBI initiated a FISA request on Danchenko, which was subsequently routed to OI in August 2010. However, the investigation into Danchenko was closed in March of 2011 after the FBI incorrectly concluded that Danchenko had left the country. Specifically, the FBI believed that Danchenko and his then-wife had traveled on a one-way ticket to London on September 26, 2010. The office's investigative efforts revealed that, in fact, Danchenko never boarded the flight to London, but, unknown to the FBI, continued to reside in the Washington, D.C. area. I don't know if in 2010 timeframe, McGonagall was... I don't remember what McGonagall was doing during that time, but I can't help but wonder if if Danchenko got a warning that he needed to shake. He needed to shake the FBI so he faked a trip out of country. 
I don't know. Maybe he got a sent. Maybe he got tipped off that he was he was being surveilled, or a case had been opened on him. Maybe it was just luck. I kind of doubt it was luck. I bet he had a tip off. I bet he knew. In 2012, after the counter espionage investigation of Danchenko had been closed because he because he was thought to have left the country, Otten exchanged emails with Baltimore Special Agent Two regarding Danchenko. Specifically, Otten advised Baltimore Special Agent Two that Danchenko may have not left, may not have left the United States as initially believed on September 10. So Otten here is following up months later. Concerned about Danchenko, way more concerned. It seems like he was more concerned about Danchenko then than he was when he interviewed him years later. The FBI apparently indicated that it would consider reopening the investigation into Danchenko, but never did. Thereafter, Otten contacted the Washington field office about reopening a case on Danchenko or alternatively, alternatively attempting to recruit him as a CHS. Otten, however, cautioned the Washington field office to not, quote, get played back meaning the Russian intelligence services could be using Danchenko as a double agent. During his interview with the office, Otten stated that he did not know what, if any, action Washington field office took with respect to this information. Ultimately, the case against Danchenko was never reopened by the Baltimore division, and no recruitment effort was undertaken by the Washington field office. The special counsel interviewed both Baltimore Special Agent 1 and Baltimore Special Agent 2. Special Agent 1 believed that based on his review of the case file, Danchenko was connected in some manner to Russian intelligence. Special Agent 1 believed that Danchenko was, quote, hiding in plain sight in the United States while frequently traveling overseas to Europe to be debriefed by Russian intelligence. Baltimore Special Agent 2 stated in some that the counterintelligence case on Danchenko remained unresolved and, in her opinion, quote, certainly a lot more investigation should have been conducted on Danchenko. This guy was right. That Danchenko, especially Agent 1, that Danchenko was hiding in plain sight and was traveling to Europe to be debriefed. That proved true later when he flipped, when he became a CHS and he flipped on the Russians and started um, feeding intel to his handler about Russians. I remember specifically the his handling agent talking about Danchenko like memorizing a, a chart or a map on a wall in a meeting room. Um, it's definitely true that he was being debriefed. Russian military intelligence. All right. Danchenko becomes a paid FBI CHS despite unresolved counterespionage investigation. Danchenko was interviewed by the FBI in January 2017 following his identification in December 2016 as Steele's primary subsource. FBI materials reviewed by the office revealed that the primary purpose for the FBI's initial engagement with Danchenko in January 2017 was to recruit him as a paid CHS. If this recruitment was successful, the FBI planned to mine Danchenko for information that was corroborative of the damaging allegations against President-elect Trump in the Steele reports. The FBI initially interviewed Danchenko over the course of three days, January 24th through 26th of 2017. These interviews were conducted pursuant to a grant of letter immunity provided by the department. The interviews were conducted primarily by Case Agent 1 and Auten. Danchenko was represented by counsel during the entirety of the interviews. As Otten has stated both in interviews with the office and as a trial witness in United States versus Danchenko, 
The game plan for the January 2017 interviews was to one, have Danchenko identify his sources for the allegations contained in the Steele reports, and two, provide evidence to corroborate the allegations contained in the Steele reports. As Otten testified in Danchenko during the, the Danchenko trial, during the January 2017 interviews, Danchenko was not able to provide any corroborative evidence related to any substantive allegation contained in the Steele reports, and critically, was an, unable to corroborate any of the FBI's assertions contained in the Carter Page FISA applications. Nevertheless, following the January 2017 interviews, Crossfire Hurricane leadership reached out to the Washington field office to begin the recruitment of Danchenko as an FBI CHS. Special Agent Kevin Helson, assigned to the counterintelligence squad at Washington field office, was selected to serve as Danchenko's source handler. According to Helson, he was selected because he was a senior agent with knowledge of Russian matters. In early March 2017, Helson prepared the, the Danchenko source opening documentation. In preparing those documents, Helson incorrectly noted that there was no, quote, derogatory information associated with Danchenko and that Danchenko had not been a primary subject of an FBI investigation. This was clearly not true, as there had be previously been the unresolved Baltimore FBI counter-espionage investigation of Danchenko that was only closed because it was believed he had left the country and returned to Russia. The office was able to determine that Helson became aware of the counter-espionage investigation shortly after completing the source opening documentation, but failed to revise the paperwork because of a purported belief that the prior case on Danchenko was based solely on hearsay. In a November 24, 2020 interview with the office, Helson was shown a spreadsheet listing Sentinel, the FBI's case management system, searches that he performed on March 7, 2017 mere days after completing the CHS opening documentation, in which he specifically queried the counter-espionage case file on Danchenko. So he was well aware of that case. Before querying it, he was told of it, and then he queried it. Helson stated that he had no recollection as to why he searched certain materials in that case file, and he advised that he would not have thought Danchenko should be the main subject of that type of espionage case, since Danchenko in Helson's view, was a foreign national without a security clearance. Whatever the reason for not locating and documenting the serious derogatory information, the record is clear. The FBI opened Danchenko as a CHS without ever resolving the Baltimore espionage matter or examining the file. Despite having seen that Danchenko was identified in the opening serial of a counter-espionage investigation in Baltimore, Helson informed investigators that he was surprised to learn from Otten on March 24, 2017, that Danchenko was indeed the main subject of that counter-espionage case. According to Helson, Otten informed him in sum that Danchenko had a long history with Russian intelligence officers, and that he had previously pitched someone for classified information. According to Helson, however, Otten advised him that the case against Danchenko was, quote, interesting, but was not a significant matter. Helson informed the office that he had a clear recollection of this conversation with Otten. Notably, Otten did not inform Helson that he had previously assisted in the Baltimore investigation. 
Once Helsin learned of the existence of the counter-espionage case against Danchenko, he failed at the time to take even the basic step of conferring with the case agents previously assigned to the matter. In fact, and as discussed in more detail below, Helsin did not reach out to Baltimore Special Agent 2 until May 2019, when Danchenko was being evaluated by the FBI CHS Validation Management Unit, and the VMU raised serious concerns about the prior espionage case. When the office asked Helsin about his reaction to learning that Danchenko pitched a colleague for classified information, Helsin stated, quote, It sounds like something Danchenko would do. That's how Danchenko works. Helsin further stated in sum that the fact Danchenko comes off as a Russian spy is describing half the population of Washington, D.C. Okay, that's pretty funny. <laughs> in his interviews with the office, Helsin was essentially dismissive of the prior counter-espionage investigation on Danchenko. Despite the unresolved counter-espionage case against Danchenko and Helsin and others, apparent lack of curiosity regarding the matter. The FBI began operating Danchenko as a paid CHS in March 2017. As discussed further below, the FBI and Helsin made no further efforts to examine the unresolved espionage case until the VMU exposed the security issues surrounding Danchenko in May 2019. Snarky Dez, good morning, and thank you very much for the rant. They say, corny is your homie, misspellings matter. That is true. That re- well, man, I can't do it right now. Um, I'm on 144. Okay, so, all right, let me scroll for a minute. I'm on page 144. I remember that. So, uh, I saw some clip. I saw a clip and was told about Devolution Power on Saturday night. Them like comparing fonts and going over Comey in the, in this, and then looking at the Horowitz report. And it was all, it's all pretty funny to me. Um, I haven't watched the entire thing. I've just seen, I've just seen some portions of it. Um, But you know, what's going on with this Comey and corny thing is that this is a PDF, right? So it's like scanned it, or it's not like scanned. It is scanned. There's a paper document that's scanned and it's been turned into a PDF. So when, Letters in this document are too close together to one another in certain arrangements. It can be scanned and the um, the software will think it's a different letter than what it is. So that's how you get the misspellings of Comey and Corny, right? And that altogether in and of itself isn't that remarkable. I've noticed as I've been threading this over on Twitter and True Social I got this pin th- uh, thread that I'm I'm doing, and as I'm doing it, I'm selecting things like I'm just selecting from the document and copy pasting it right. And I've noticed that there's times where I I put a copy paste of what's in the document and the it comes out incorrectly spelled because in the scan of this it misinterpret the software misinterprets what letter is actually there. It's understandable. What makes it remarkable, though, in my opinion, is that there's only one time that it correctly notices Comey. In this whole document, there's only one Comey that comes up as correctly spelled. 
But when you type in corny, you get 56. You get 56 cornies. And they all look the same, as you can see. There's, it looks like Comey because it is Comey. It actually is Comey. But the software scans it and thinks it's a C O R N E Y. But if you go to Comey, it's only got one. And to me, that's actually what makes it significant. The, the software or the PDF scanning this and, and finding misspellings or like, you know, merging letters together or breaking them apart. That in and of itself is not that remarkable. It's that there's one time it's correct. That makes it re remarkable to me. Um, the other thing it makes that makes it remarkable to me is that this is a way that things can things can be hidden when you search for PDFs that are scanned is that a misspelling can make it more difficult to find that document. And we know that that's the case. Um, one of the things we know is that Horowitz, um, after uh, Baker said, or after Baker alerted um, Horowitz and Durham that they didn't have all of his phones, they went back to go look and see, and they and Horowitz told his, his staff to search various spellings because... And, it, and he didn't actually didn't have to explain it, but the inference is that they were misfiled and they had a different, there was a misspelling or there was something that made it when they searched a database to see who, all right, how, how many phones from James Baker do we have? If it was miss, if it was misspelled in there, you wouldn't find it when you queried the database. So that's what makes it really stand out to me. Now there was someone giving me a hard time on true social and I hate to give them any attention, but they were giving me a hard time on True Social about the co the Comey Corny thing and um, trying to say that it was nothing and whatever. So anyway, they put in on their uh, thing. I looked at what they were saying and they noticed that, look, if you put in company instead of instead of company, if you type in company, you get 191 results. But they were like, look, I can show you this is nothing important. Just search corn penny, corn penny. Okay. See, look, there's company, but it's actually corn. If you search corn penny, you still get a company return. Okay. Cause it's scanned it and it thinks it's an R and an N instead of an M. But this person actually ended up proving that I'm onto something <laughs> because when you search corn penny instead of company, you get three results that all have to do with Rodney Joffe, who was recommended to DODIG Robert Storch. So you search Cornpenny and you get Joffe at Tech Company 2, Joffe at Tech Company 2, Joffe at Tech Company 2. And I just think it's hilarious that someone tried to like prove that I wasn't onto anything. And at the same time, they ended up pointing me towards something else that's interesting about this document. <laughs> Is that every single place where it's spelled cornpenny instead of company, it has to do with Joffe, who was recommended 
to Robert Storch. Anyway, anyway, squirreling on that point for a moment. Um, It's one of those interesting things where there's a reasonable explanation for why it happens, which grants you plausible deniability, right? There's a reasonable explanation. But once it happens in these certain documents and you start noticing it, then you realize it, it's a little bit more, it's, a, it's, 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 it can be explained, but there is a significance to it. And then you go to, yeah, as uh, Jason mentions, then you go to Grassley and uh, yeah, we know, we know what's up. I think I don't think it's like this massive calm. It's going to like blow everything wide open or whatever. I just think it's a wink nudge hat tip thing. For though it's an it's one of those if you know you know things. All right. 2. The VMU examines Danchenko's suitability as a source. The FBI's previous espionage investigation into Danchenko was raised in May 2019 in the context of a human source validation report, an HSVR, on Danchenko prepared by the FBI's VMU. The VMU raised several concerns related to Danchenko's past associations, behaviors, and travel history, including the prior and unresolved espionage case. In addition to the information contained in the prior espionage file, including Danchenko's fairly extensive contacts with known and suspected Russian intelligence officers, the HSVR detailed a February 2018 U.S. Customs and Border inspection of Danchenko when he re-entered the United States after being in the United Kingdom, in which a CBP officer discovered business cards for Russian diplomats residing in England. The HSVR also detailed several falsehoods and inconsistencies found in Danchenko's visa applications and immigration documents. One member of the VMU, with extensive prior service as an army counterintelligence officer in Europe, and she's going to be headquarters supervisor analyst one, expressed grave concerns about the counterespionage case and was strongly of the opinion that Danchenko was connected to Russian intelligence in some manner. Yeah, he's talking about the, the lady who testified, I believe. In response to the concerns of supervisory analyst one and the others in the VMU, Helson reached out to Baltimore Special Agent 2 for the first time over two years after he initially learned of the counter-espionage case against Danchenko. Helson informed the v- VMU and later the office that Baltimore Special Agent 2 stated in sum that the investigation was premised on, quote, hearsay at best. However, when interviewed by the office on July 28, 2020, Baltimore Special Agent 2 expressed disbelief when he first learned that Danchenko had been signed up as an FBI source because, among other things, the FBI had not resolved the prior counter-espionage case. When informed that Helson stated to the VMU that Baltimore Special Agent 2 had characterized the predication of the counter-espionage case as hearsay at best, Baltimore Special Agent 2 was adamant that she would never have characterized Danchenko's direct pitch to Brookings Researcher 1 for classified information as hearsay. To the contrary, Baltimore Special Agent 2 stated that the information came directly from the individual who was the target of the pitch for classified information. 
In two subsequent interviews with the office, Baltimore Special Agent 2 again denied ever telling Helston that the counter-espionage case against Danchenko was predicated on hearsay at best. Special Agent 2 confirmed to the office that the Danchenko counter-espionage case, case would have continued if he had not left the country, as the FBI mistakenly believed he had. When shown Elson's source opening documentation that contained the no derog entry, meaning no derogatory, Baltimore Special Agent 2 agreed that the entry was clearly incorrect. BMU's recommendation to WFO and Helson. The HSBR on Danchenko recommended that he be allowed to remain open as a CHS, but recommended that several steps be taken to help mitigate the VMU's substantial concerns about Danchenko. As an initial matter, when asked why the VMU recommended that Danchenko be allowed to remain open, given the concerns noted above, several individuals who participated in the HSVR stated that the VMU lacked the institutional ability to do anything more than to make recommendations to mitigate CHS issues. One supervisor in the VM, VMU noted that it rarely recommended closure of sources out of a general fear that the field offices would largely be unreceptive to the important recommendations designed to enhance source handling issues if the VMU recommended closure of a source. In addition to the serious concern about the prior unresolved counterespionage investigation, the VMU also highlighted numerous problematic areas that warranted attention. For example, Danchenko's background and employment history had noted inconsistencies and omissions. His assessed motivation providing information to the FBI had changed. His immigration applications omitted certain derogatory information and contained inconsistencies and falsehoods. And, despite his concerns for his personal safety, he traveled frequently to Russia before becoming a CHS. Danchenko also demonstrated knowledge of tradecraft and made contradictory statements, and much of the information he provided appeared to be hearsay that he was unable, despite request, to validate. The VMU recommended several steps to mitigate these areas, such as administering a polygraph examination, further controls on his reporting, and additional evaluation, but these did not occur. Instead, Helson and the Washington field office ignored nearly all of the VMU's recommendations and continued to operate Danchenko as a CHS until the WFO was ordered to close Danchenko in October 2020. In total, the FBI paid Danchenko approximately $220,000 during the 3.5 years that Danchenko was a CHS. FBI counterintelligence personnel at the Washington field office and in the counterintelligence division at FBI headquarters opposed efforts to close Danchenko and delayed doing so. Hey, let's look at these footnotes because these have some substance to them. At the time of the evaluation, at the time the evaluation was prepared on Danchenko, it was the practice of the VMU not to recommend that a CHS be closed, but rather to make recommendations of things to be done and continuing to operate a source. OSC report of interview, blah, 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 blah. The CHS policy guide, as issued in 2021, now includes requirements that, one, the VMU is to, quote, manage the FBI's validation review process and, quote, must determine what level of validation review is required for each CHS, 
Two, the assistant director for intelligence is to approve or deny the reopening of a CHS closed for cause. Three, the directorate of intelligence manages the senior review board, whose function is to ensure, quote, comprehensive review by senior FBI officials of the FBI's highest risk CHSs. Next footnote. The FBI uses a polygraph examination as a straightforward and practical way to assess a source's motivations, allegiances, and vulnerabilities. Okay. I scroll up too far. There we go. Moreover, the office learned that the FBI proposed making continued future payments to Danchenko totaling more than $300,000 while the office was actively investigating this matter, which would have been in addition to the 220000 he had already received. Okay. It is extremely concerning that the FBI failed to deal with the prior unresolved counterespionage case in Danchenko. Given Danchenko's known contacts with Russian intelligence officers and his documented prior pitch for classified information, the Crossfire Hurricane team's failure to properly consider and address the espionage case prior to opening Danchenko as a CHS is difficult to explain, particularly given, his, given their awareness that Danchenko was the linchpin to the uncorroborated allegations contained in the Steele reports. Despite the FBI's awareness of, one, there being significant issues relating to conflicts between what Danchenko had reported to the FBI in January 2017 and thereafter, as a paid CHS and what Steele, a long-term paid CHS of the FBI, had stated in the company intelligence reports he provided to the FBI and others, Danchenko's troubling history regarding a prior unresolved espionage matter and a CHS validation report that raised various red flags concerning Danchenko, the counterintelligence executive managers at the Washington field office and FBI headquarters resisted efforts to have Danchenko closed as a source. Instead, management supported continued payments to him, requiring FBI headquarters approval of sizable amounts of money and insisted that Danchenko was very valuable to the FBI's counterintelligence program. Interviews conducted by the office revealed, however, that the assistant directors for counterintelligence in the Washington field office and FBI headquarters, as well as the FBI's executive assistant director for national security, made clear that they were not even able to accurately describe the value or contributions of Danchenko that would justify keeping him open, much less making hundreds of thousands of dollars in payments to him. Indeed, the assistant director for counterintelligence at FBI headquarters thought Danchenko was being paid for information he was providing that corroborated the Steele dossier reporting, which, of course, was not the case, because Danchenko has never produced any such evidence. Who told the assistant director for counterintelligence at FBI headquarters that Danchenko was corroborating the Steele dossier. I wonder. I think I missed a rant. A DZ dork. Good morning. They say, why would they need to OCR scan the document? Why wouldn't it be provided digitally in the first place? I don't have the answer for that. Straight up. I don't got the answer for that. I don't know. 
by one, ignoring the significance of Danchenko's prior status as a subject of counter-espionage investigation. By the way, thank you for the rant. Good morning. Um, ignoring the significance of Danchenko's prior status as a subject of counter-espionage investigation. Two, failing to resolve the conflict between that history and his role as a primary subsource for steel reporting. And three, failing to follow through on VMU's recommendations for continued operation of Danchenko as a CHS. Helson and the Counterintelligence Division missed another opportunity to make any needed course corrections to Crossfire Hurricane and in the use of Danchenko as a CHS. D. Danchenko's relationship with Charles Dolan. All right, before we launch into this segment, we are going to take a intermission to refill coffee cups and... uh, then we will come back. Let me. Just a moment, just a moment. Just a moment. All right, we are going to go to intermission. Let me get this uh, music set up see in a few minutes
All right, welcome back. I see Salt Muncher is in chat sharing conspiracy theories that federal taxes aren't needed. That is extremism, sir. He's even saying that taxation is theft. He might be onto something. I just might agree. All right, R.L. Skeeter, thanks for the Rumble rant. I say I find it odd or interesting that in Durham's report, he repeatedly states that the investigation in Danchenko ceased because it was thought he was out of the country. Is there a there to this? Well, there was a flight booked for him and his wife to fly to England, I think it was. And, um, he didn't go, but they thought he did is the story. And so they closed the investigation cause they thought he was out of country. Um, how much of it is that he duped them and how much of it is that they didn't do a good job tracking him? I don't know. Considering the agent was adamant, like in that section, we just read that the agent that was on that case was adamant that, he wouldn't have closed the case if he hadn't thought he left the country and that Danchenko was, um, that it wasn't based on hearsay. They had direct reporting from the target. I think, I think the F I think he slipped. I think he gave the FBI the slip. That's what I think. Um, not trying to defend the FBI, but I think that Danchenko is former Russian military intelligence. And I think he knew how to give the FBI the slip. And so I think he did. And that resulted in them closing that case. And um, he continued to go back and forth. I don't know what gave my guess is that there must have been some communications. There's probably there's more to this than just him buying a ticket, a flight, you know, and then not boarding it. There's probably some communications and some other things that indicated that Danchenko was preparing to leave the country that led up to them believing that he actually had left, you know. So, I mean, they're aware of the flight, right? They were probably they were already looking at him. And surveilling him. I'm guessing that they all indications were he was leaving the country. They didn't have they didn't have probable cause to arrest him. So he left or they thought he left. And I think he just gave him the slip. But the, the real problem is that when they became aware that he was in the country, and wanted to interview him because they suspected him of being steel, one of Steele's sources, if not the source. Um, they should have pulled up that prior case and reopened it. Like, that's the real problem is that that prior counter espionage case should have been reopened and dealt with. And if they had done that, then it would have led them down a line of questioning with Danchenko that would have been completely different and they would have discovered that he was a that he was a Russian agent and they still may have made him a CHS because he did provide some they I mean Helson says that he provided a ton of of uh information I remember from the trial Helson saying that Danchenko was the the greatest source they ever had basically for Russian counterintelligence um, which would make sense because he was former Russian military, so Russian military intelligence. So he would have a whole bunch of knowledge. Um, 
So like apart from the whole Steele dossier thing, it's pretty easy to recognize the value that Danchenko would have to the FBI as far as counter intel goes. And so from Helson's perspective, that's what he values about Danchenko. And that's how he views him. This Steele dossier thing was inconvenient to Helson, I think. Um, he didn't care about this. He wasn't on the Steel Crossfire Hurricane thing. He wasn't, he wasn't part of Crossfire Hurricane. Helson wasn't. Helson only needed him for the counter intel information that Danchenko provided. Um, and he valued that information so much that Helson was willing to lie and falsify forms and other things in order to keep or to, to open Danchenko as a CHS and to keep him open as a CHS. He was willing to ignore all those other things. Um, wrongly, he shouldn't have done that. But yeah, they closed it because he left town or they thought he did. And I'm sure there's more, there's far more to it than we know right now. Um, but what's, what's funny to me, like, well, I guess it's not funny, but there's some kind of weird irony is that, um, the, the allegations that this whole thing, this whole crossfire hurricane plan is premised on, of course, is that there's this secret plan and collusion between Trump and Russia. When in fact, those allegations are coming from a literal Russian military intelligence officer or like the predicate for the FISA on page is coming from a Russian military intelligence guy. So the real Russia collusion is between Hillary campaign, DNC, FBI. That's where the real collusion was. All right. Um, Filter Dog over on uh, Foxhole asks, and thank you for the, the gold pills. He says, why did the corny, why did the corny Comey problem happen with FOIA? What you're asking, why did I think they, the why of it is to hide things. So if you're looking for documents that contain stuff about Comey, if you make sure it all says Comey, I mean corny, then when you search it, it doesn't come up. So, and that's why the drops taught us to search corny so that we could find more documents that had actually, if you go, go to justice.gov and search corny, you'll get a ton of hits. All right. Danchenko's relationship with Charles Dolan. When interviewed by the FBI in June 2017, Danchenko failed to disclose the role of, of a U.S.-based individual named Charles Dolan. Played in the report that he that Charles Dolan played in the reporting Danchenko provided for inclusion in the Steele reports. In particular, Danchenko denied that Dolan provided any specific information contained in the Steele reports. However, Dolan acknowledged to the office that he provided information to Danchenko related to Paul Manafort's firing as Trump campaign manager. Dolan admitted to the office that his allegation, which appears in the Steel Report 2016-105, was fabricated. It's crazy to me that Dolan can, be, can admit to, Dan, to Special Counsel Durham that he lied about that, but not be charged. But I guess it's because you would have, Durham would have to prove that Dolan knowingly provided that false allegation to Danchenko 
knowing it would end up in the Steele report and knowing that it would be used against, um, that it would be used in a FISA application. And how you would have to prove that Dolan was aware that him providing this allegation would lead to the things it led to. Because otherwise it's just bar talk, right? That's, that's the way it is. As discussed in a previous section during October 3rd, 2016 Rome meeting, Steele provided the FBI with the names of four U.S.-based individuals who might have information on Trump's connections to Russia. Three of the names provided by Steele were Washington, D.C.-based individuals Charles Dolan, U.S. Person 1, and U.S. Person 2. I would love to know who they are. An FBI report of a September 18th and 2019th, 2017 interview of Steele cryptically mentioned that Danchenko had drinks with Dolan, but the report included no further information on that topic. In the same interview, however, Steele also stated that Dolan could have been the, quote, American political figure associated with Donald Trump in his campaign, referenced in the following paragraph of Steele Report 2016-105. Speaking separately, also in late August 2016, an American political figure associated with Donald Trump and his campaign outlined the reasons behind Paul Manafort's recent demise he or she said it was true that the Ukraine corruption revelations had played a part in this, but also several senior players close to Trump had wanted Manafort out, primarily to loosen his control on strategy and policy formulation. Of particular importance in this regard was Manafort's predecessor as campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, who hated Manafort personally and remained close to Trump with whom he discussed the presidential campaign on a regular basis. The following section discusses in greater detail Dolan's role in the Steele dossier reporting and his relationship with Danchenko. Charles Dolan is a public relations professional who in 2016 was employed by a Washington, D.C.-based public relations firm called K-Global. In addition to his work as a public relations professional, Dolan had previously served as executive director of the Democratic Governors Association, Virginia chairman of former President Clinton's 1992 and 1996 presidential campaigns, and an advisor to Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign. Moreover, beginning in 1997, President Clinton appointed Dolan to two four-year terms at the State Department's U.S. Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. With respect to the 2016 Clinton campaign, Dolan described himself as a quote-unquote door-to-door guy in New Hampshire who did not hold any significant position. In his role as a public relations professional, Dolan spent much of his career interacting with Eurasian clients with a particular focus on Russia. For example, from approximately 1999 through 2004-2005, Dolan was employed by global public relations firm Ketchum Incorporated, where he assisted with Ketchum's representation of the federal of the Russian Federation. Part of Dolan's responsibility on the Russian Federation account consisted of, among other things, monitoring current policy discussions of U.S. based think tanks and reporting back to the Russian government. Dolan also assisted in media consulting and press operations for the 2006 G8 summit held in St. Petersburg, Russia. As a senior member of Ketchum's Russian Federation team, 
Dolan frequently interacted with Russian government officials, including, most importantly, Dmitry, Dmitry Peskov, press secretary of the Russian presidential administration, and Alex Pavlov, deputy press secretary of the presidential administration. Peskov has often been described in media reports as Russian President Putin's, quote, right-hand man. As discussed more below, both Peskov and Pavlov would subsequently feature prominently in the Steele reports. Additionally, Dolan maintained relationships with Sergei Kislyak, who served as Russian ambassador to the United States from 2008 to 2017, and Mikhail Kalugin, the head of the Russian embassy's economic section in Washington, D.C. from 2010 to 2016. Both Kislyak and Kalugin would also feature prominently in the Steele reports. Dolan introduced to Danchenko. In March 2016, Brookings Fellow One introduced Dolan to Danchenko in connection with potential business opportunity. Specifically, Danchenko had reached out to Brookings Fellow One in an attempt to broker business between a U.S.-based public relations firm and his longtime friend, Olga Galkina, an executive at a Cypress-based computer, computer firm named Servers.com. Danchenko would later inform the FBI that Galkina served as a source of information for allegations contained in the Steele reports. Brookings Fellow One subsequently connected Danchenko and Dolan to discuss a possible business venture between Dolan and Servers.com. In March 2016, Danchenko brokered a meeting between Dolan and his firm K-Global and Galkina to discuss a potential business arrangement between K-Global and Servers.com, the latter of which was attempting to enter the U.S. marketplace. Dolan was joined at this meeting by Washington-based lobbyist, U.S. Person 2, with whom Dolan had previously worked, and who Steele would later name along with Dolan as a possible source for information on Trump-Russia connections. Dolan and K-Global would ultimately enter a contractual relationship with Servers.com. As discussed in detail below, Dolan traveled to Cyprus on two occasions in the summer of 2016 to meet with Galkina, Alexev Gubarev, the principal of Servers.com, and other executives at Servers.com. As a result of this collaboration, Dolan and Danchenko continued to communicate through the spring of 2016. Looking at these footnotes, interview of Danchenko, according to their website, servers.com provides access to computer servers and data centers throughout the world. Okay, nothing else. In late April 2016, Dolan and Danchenko engaged in separate discussions regarding a potential business collaboration between K-Global and Orbis. For example, on April 29, 2016, Danchenko sent an email to Dolan indicating that Danchenko had passed a letter to Christopher Steele on behalf of Dolan. Specifically, the email sent to Dolan stated that Danchenko had, quote, forwarded your letter to Steele and Steele's business partner, Christopher Burroughs. The email continued, quote, I'll make sure you gentlemen meet when they are in Washington or when you are in London. That same day, Danchenko sent an email to Dolan outlining certain work that Danchenko was com- conducting for Orbis. The email attached an Orbis report titled, quote, Intelligence Briefing Note, Compromat and Nadzor in the Russian banking sector. 
Beginning in early 2015, a Washington, D.C.-based lawyer and acquaintance of Dolan, which is U.S. Person 1, informed Dolan that he was planning a business conference for October 2016 in Moscow. The conference, titled Inside the Kremlin, was being sponsored by the Young President's Organization, YPO, and was designed to introduce senior international business executives to potential investment opportunities in Russia, the YPO conference. To that end, the YPO conference was to include individuals who could provide insight into the economic, political, and diplomatic cultural aspects of the Russian Federation. The YPO conference was to be held at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Moscow. U.S. Person 1 enlisted Dolan to participate in the YPO conference because of Dolan's access to senior Russian government officials and his ability to provide analysis of the approaching 2016 U.S. presidential election. In April 2016, Dolan asked Danchenko to assist Dolan and U.S. Person 1 with the YPO conference, which Danchenko agreed to do. Dolan believed that Danchenko's language skills and his supposed contacts in the Russian government would be of assistance to the conference. Dolan subsequently asked and received permission from U.S. Person 1 to enlist Danchenko to assist with logistics, provide translation services, and present on various relevant topics at the YPO conference. In preparation for the YPO conference, Dolan and U.S. Person 1 planned to travel to Moscow in June 2016 to view the Ritz-Carlton and other potential sites for the conference. The June planning trip is how this is referred to. At the same time, Danchenko informed Dolan that he would be present in Moscow in June on other business. On April 30th, 2016, Dolan sent an email to a U.S.-based acquaintance and stated in part the following. Waiting on confirmation for meetings with Kremlin. If all goes well, I will probably leave on the 9th of June and stop in London to meet with these intelligence guys and another potential project, but nothing certain and leave on the 10th for Moscow and stay for a week. So he's he's the stop in London is about meeting with Steele and Burroughs. In his interviews with the office, Dolan denied meeting with Steele. Travel records confirm that Dolan did not travel to London prior to the June planning trip. In fact, the office was not able to find any definitive evidence to indicate that Dolan ever met with Steele. To further prepare for the YPO conference, in May, July, and October 2016, Dolan and U.S. Person 1 attended at least three meetings at the U.S. the Russian Embassy in Washington, D.C., and communicated with Russian Embassy staff, including Ambassador Sergei Kislyak and head of the economics section, Mikhail Kalugin. As noted above, both Kislyak and Kalugin would feature prominently in the Steele reports. Danchenko was not present at any of these meetings. In anticipation of the June planning trip to Moscow, Dolan attempted to communicate with Press Secretary Peskov and Deputy Press Secretary Pavlov, as well as former Russian President and then Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev. Dolan had previously attended several lunches with Medvedev when he, Dolan, served as an advisor to the Valdai Club in connection with his work at Ketchum. The Valdai Club is a Moscow-based think tank that is closely associated with Russian President Putin and is viewed by many in the West as a vehicle for Russian propaganda. In May 2016, Dolan reached out to Medvedev's press secretary to have Medvedev speak at the YPO conference. Uh, 
when interviewed by the FBI in September 2017. Steele noted that his primary subsource, Danchenko, was, has subsources who had access to Dmitry Peskov. In particular, Steele stated that information in the reports involving Peskov stemmed from a friend of a friend of his primary subsource, Danchenko. Later in the interview, Steele informed the FBI that his primary subsource had a subsource who had contact with Alexei Pavlov and had conversations with Pavlov about Peskov. Steele told the FBI that his unidentified source was close to then-Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev. As discussed above, Dolan claimed to have met Medvedev on several occasions. Steele also stated that his primary subsource, Danchenko, would, would meet Pavlov for drinks when he, the primary subsource, traveled to Russia. However, as discussed more fully below, the office found no information to indicate that Danchenko maintained a relationship with Pavlov. On June 10, 2016, before traveling abroad, Dolan sent an email to a U.S.-based acquaintance reflecting that Dolan and Danchenko had become colleagues. Dolan stated in part, On Monday night I fly to Moscow and will meet with Russian guy, Danchenko, who is working with me on a couple of projects. He also works for a group of former MI6 guys in London who do in intelligence for business. I wonder who that could be. Send me your questions and I'll pass them to Igor. He owes me as his visa is being held up and I am having a word with the ambassador. Oh, how nice of you, Mr. Dolan. Shortly thereafter, Dolan sent another email to the U.S.-based acquaintance. In describing Danchenko, Dolan stated, quote, He is too young for KGB, but I think he worked for FSB. It was actually GRU. Since he told me he spent two years in Iran, and when I first met him, he knew more about me than I did. Winking emoticon. The Federal Security Service of the Russian Federation, or FSB, is the principal security agency of Russia and principal successor agency to the KGB. When interviewed by the office, Dolan stated that he was speculating about Danchenko's connections to Russian intelligence and that he was, quote-unquote, half-joking and half-serious. Dolan was scheduled to be in Moscow for the June planning trip from June 13th to 18th, 2016. <coughs> In connection with the June planning trip, Dolan decided to first travel to Cyprus to meet with executives from servers.com. Dolan departed Washington, D.C. on June 9th, arrived in Moscow on the morning of June 10th, and departed for Cyprus later that afternoon. While in Cyprus, Dolan met with Galkina, Gubarev, and other executives at servers.com's offices. Dolan then left Cyprus on June 13th and flew to Moscow to attend the June planning trip. During the June planning trip, Dolan and U.S. Person 1 stayed at the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow. On June 14th, Danchenko, who as noted above was already present in Moscow, met Dolan for lunch at a restaurant in Moscow. Dolan and Danchenko took a photograph together in front of the Kremlin, which was later posted by Danchenko on Facebook. According to Dolan, this was the only time he encountered Danchenko on the June planning trip, and Danchenko did not stay at the Ritz-Carlton during the June planning trip, a fact that was confirmed by hotel records. While in Moscow, Dolan and U.S. Person 1 participated in, among other things, 
a meeting with the German national general manager of the Ritz-Carlton and at least one female hotel staff member to discuss the logistics of the YPO conference, a lunch with the general manager and three hotel staff members who assisted in the preparation for the YPO conference, and a tour of the hotel. Dolan told the office that during the June planning trip, he met with two deputies from the Russian presidential administration press office. That would be Dmitry Peskov's office. According to Dolan, Danchenko was not present for any events at the Ritz-Carlton during the June planning trip and was not present for his meeting with the deputies from the press office. As discussed in detail below, the general manager and other hotel staff members would later appear in the Steele reports. On June 15, 2016, Dolan emailed an acquaintance from Moscow, quote, I'm in Russia making plans to be adopted in the event this madman, Trump, gets elected. On June 18, 2016, Dolan returned to D.C. On June 17, 2016, Danchenko flew from Moscow to London and met with Christopher Steele on the following day. Three days later, in Steele Report 2016-080, dated June 20, 2016, an allegation appeared that described salacious sexual activity that Trump allegedly had participated in while a guest at the Ritz-Carlton Moscow. The allegation stated, in part, according to Source D, where he or she had been present, Trump's perverted conduct in Moscow included hiring the presidential suite of the Ritz-Carlton, where he knew President and Mrs. Obama, whom he hated, had stayed on one of their official trips to Russia, and defiling the bed where they had slept by employing a number of prostitutes to perform golden showers or urination shows in front of him. The hotel was known to be under FSB control, with microphones and concealed cameras in all the main rooms to record anything they wanted to. The Ritz-Carlton episode involving Trump, reported above, was confirmed by Source E, a senior Western member of, a, of staff at the hotel, who said that he or she and several of the staff were aware of it at the time and subsequently. He or she believed it had happened in 2013. Source E provided an introduction for a company ethnic Russian operative to Source F, a female staffer at the hotel, when Trump had stayed there who also confirmed the story. Certain of the information in the June 20th, 2016 still report reflected facts that Dolan learned from the June planning trip to Moscow. For example, while at the Ritz-Carlton, Dolan, one, received a tour of the hotel and, according to Dolan, possibly the presidential suite, and two, met with senior Western member staff of the senior Western member of the staff in context, the general manager, um, that was a German guy. I remember him from the, the Danchenko trial and other staff of the Ritz Carlton. As noted, Danchenko did not stay at the Ritz Carlton in June, 2016, but had lunch with Dolan during the June planning trip at some other location. Notably when interviewed by the office, us person one recalled he and Dolan took a tour of the presidential suite Following his initial interview at the office, Dolan called U.S. Person 1 and U.S. Person 1 confirmed that he, U.S. Person 1, and Dolan had in fact taken a tour of that presidential suite. During that tour, hotel staff were told the participants that Trump had previously been a guest in the presidential suite. According to U.S. Person 1, 
The staff member informed them that Donald Trump had stayed in the suite, but did not mention any sexual or salacious activity. When interviewed by the office, Dolan's recollection about taking a tour of the presidential suite at the Ritz-Carlton was inconsistent, and his recollection vacillated over the course of several interviews. Dolan stated in some that it was possible that he, Dolan, had had told Danchenko about the presidential suite and Trump, but he had no specific recollection of doing so. Dolan was adamant that he never told Danchenko about any salacious sexual activity that occurred in the suite. The office also interviewed the then general manager of Ritz-Carlton Moscow. The general manager, a German citizen who does not speak Russian, was described in the Steele report as, quote, senior Western member of staff at the hotel and identified as source E. The general manager did not recognize the photograph of Danchenko that he was shown by the office. He also denied having knowledge of the Ritz-Carlton allegations concerning Trump at any time prior to their being rep- them being reported in the media. As such, the general manager adamantly denied discussing such allegations with or hearing them from Danchenko or anyone else. Further, the office obtained records from the Ritz-Carlton Moscow that revealed that Trump was a guest at the hotel in 2013, but did not stay in the presidential suite then or at any other time. Would have been so easy to debunk that, right? (laughs) When interviewed by the FBI in January 2017, Danchenko claimed that he had sourced this information in part while staying at the Ritz-Carlton Moscow during the June planning trip. While Danchenko initially told the FBI that he had been a guest at the Ritz-Carlton, the Ritz-Carlton Moscow during the June planning trip. In a later interview, he acknowledged that he had visited but not stayed at the hotel during the June planning trip. Danchenko also claimed that he inquired about the Ritz-Carlton allegations with hotel staff who did not deny their validity. Finally, Danchenko told the FBI that he reported the names of these hotel staff members to Christopher Steele. In his September 2017 interview, Steele also told the FBI that Source E and Source F were employees at the Ritz-Carlton Moscow with whom his primary subsource, Danchenko, personally met. Thus, it seems apparent that Danchenko provided the general manager's information to Steele. Danchenko also told the FBI that source D, another purported source of the Ritz-Carlton allegations, could be referring to Sergei Milian. In a subsequent May 2017 FBI interview, while serving as an FBI CHS, Danchenko again confirmed that he had spoken with hotel management about the Ritz-Carlton allegations, In that interview, Danchenko also stated that Source E was probably one of the hotel managers. Got a footnote here. However, as discussed in more detail below, Danchenko told the FBI that his purported first contact with Million was July 21st, 2016. Since Danchenko was the only Orbis person who reportedly had contact with Million, his contention that Million could be a source for the Steele report dated June 20th, 2016, was an impossibility. In other words, a lie. When interviewed by the FBI in September 2017, Christopher Steele stated that Source D was in fact Sergey Million, an individual who was in direct contact with his primary subsource, Danchenko. However, 
Given that Denchenko repeatedly told the FBI that the first and only time he allegedly communicated with someone he thought was Million was late July 2016 when he received an anonymous call from a male with a Russian accent. It would have been impossible for Million to have been a source for the Ritz-Carlton allegations and other information to Danchenko in June 2016. Thus, Danchenko's statements to the FBI about having no previous contact with Million were false. Or Danchenko's statements to Steele about Source D were false. Or Steele gave knowingly false information to the FBI. Footnote. As discussed below, the Crossfire Hurricane team appears to have never endeavored to resolve this question. The office found the general manager's statement that he never met with Danchenko to be credible, especially in light of his well-spoken, thoughtful demeanor and his confidence in his recollections. Based on the above analysis, the only person who met with both Danchenko and the Ritz-Carlton general manager and the other managers during the June planning trip was Dolan. The same Steel Report 2016-080 that contained the Ritz-Carlton allegations also contained the following allegation. Continuing on this theme, Source G, a senior Kremlin official, confided that the Clinton dossier was controlled exclusively by senior Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov on the direct instructions of Putin himself. The dossier had not been made available as yet inter alia to any foreigners, including Trump and his inner circle. However, Putin's intentions with regard to the dossier and future dissemination remained unclear. When interviewed by the FBI in September 2017, Steele identified Source G as Alexei Pavlov, the deputy press secretary for the Russian presidential administration. Steele stated in sum that this information was collected by his primary subsource, Danchenko, during a trip to Russia, which, given the date of the report, would coincide with his June 2016 trip and Dolan's June planning trip. The FBI appears to have never addressed this particular allegation with Danchenko or explored whether Danchenko maintained a relationship with Alexei Pavlov. The office has not seen any independent evidence to indicate that Danchenko had a relationship with Pavlov. As discussed above, Dolan, however, did have a relationship with Pavlov. Leading up to the June planning trip, Dolan attempted to contact Pavlov on several occasions. Dolan, however, stated that he could not recall if he connected with Pavlov prior to or during the June planning trip. In light of these facts, there appears to be a real likelihood that Dolan was the actual source of much of the Ritz-Carlton and Pavlov information contained in the Steele reports. Okay, let me see how long this section is so I know if I can get... Okay, no, I can get through this. Okay. Dolan returns to Cyprus in July 2016. Following the June planning trip, Dolan returned to Washington, D.C., where he continued to communicate with both Danchenko and Galkina. In July 2016, Dolan returned to Cyprus to meet with Galkina, Gubarev, and other executives at Servers.com. Curiously, Steele was in Cyprus at the same time Dolan was meeting with Galkina and others in Cyprus. Hmm. 
Hmm, I wonder. What a coincidence. During this July trip and continuing through the fall of 2016, Dolan and Galkina communicated regularly via telephone, email, and social media. In several of these communications, Dolan and Galkina discussed their political views, support for Clinton, and Galkina's future employment. For example, during the July 2016 meeting in Cyprus, Dolan gave Galkina an autobiography of Clinton, which he signed and inscribed the handwritten message, quote, to my good friend Olga, a great Democrat. On July 13, 2016, Galkina sent a message to a Russia-based associate and stated that Dolan had written a letter to Dmitry Peskov, the Russian press secretary, in support of Galkina's candidacy for a position in the Russian presidential administration. In his interviews with the office, Dolan did not recall the specific position Galkina was referring to and noted that it was possible that he reached out to Peskov on behalf of Galkina, but had no specific recollection of doing so. On July 22, 2016, Dolan sent an email to Galkina and informed her that he would be attending a reception for Hillary Clinton. Shortly thereafter, Galkina responded, quote, Tell her, please, she, Mrs. Clinton, has a big fan in Cyprus. Can I please ask you to sign for me her anything? In August 2016, Galkina sent a message to a Russia-based associate describing Dolan as a, quote, advisor to Hillary Clinton. Galkina further commented regarding what might happen if Clinton were to win the U.S. presidential election, stating in Russian, quote, when Dolan takes me off to the State Department to handle issues of the former USSR, then we'll see who is looking good and who is not. In September 2016, Galkina made a similar comment in a message to the same associate, stating in Russian that Dolan would, quote, take me to the State Department if Hillary wins. Let me check these footnotes real quick. As discussed more below, Special Agent Kevin Helson speculated that Charles Dolan may have directly communicated with Christopher Steele. The office, however, uncovered no evidence to support this speculation. Okay. On October 15, 2016, Galkina communicated with a Russia-based journalist and stated that because of her, Galkina's, acquaintance, quote, acquaintance with Chuck Dolan and several citizens from the Russian presidential administration, Galkina knew, quote, something and can tell a little about it by voice. On November 7th, 2016, the, and what she's meaning is she can talk to them in person. She knows a little something and she can talk to them in person about it. She can't message it to them. On November 7th, 2016, the day before the 2016 presidential election, Galkina emailed Dolan in English and stated in part, I am preparing you some information on former USSR UIC countries. Igor, meaning Danchenko, possibly told you about that. Tomorrow your country is having a great day. So as a big Hillary fan, I wish her and all her supporters to have a victory day. Hope that someday her book will have one more autograph on it. Thank you for your help and support. Best regards, Olga. 
What she means right there is that she's hoping one day Hillary Clinton herself will sign the book that Dolan gave her. When initially interviewed by the office, Dolan stated that Galkina was the, quote, last person with whom he would ever discuss U.S. politics. However, in a subsequent interview, when confronted with emails and social media messages with Galkina evincing communications about Clinton and the 2016 U.S. presidential election, Dolan admitted that he had some discussions with Galkina about the 2016 election and her support for Clinton. However, in an August 2017 FBI interview, Galkina stated in some that she discussed some of the information contained in the Steele reports with Dolan. Despite Galkina's identification of Dolan as someone with whom she discussed the Steele reports and the fact that Dolan resided in the Washington, D.C. area, the FBI failed to interview Dolan about Galkina's statements concerning the Steele reports. And check it, guys. They knew of Dolan in August 2017 because they interviewed Galkina then. And Galkina told them, yeah, I talked to Dolan about some of the allegations in the Steele dossier. But the FBI didn't go and interview Dolan. I also, like, this, um, this instance here, Durham caught Dolan in a lie. Durham flat out caught Dolan lying about who, what, about talking to Galkina about U.S. politics. And he's got him dead to rights. He has all these Facebook messages. He's got Dolan's gifted Hillary Clinton book with the with his signature in it. I don't understand why Dolan's not charged with lying to the special counsel. I don't know, guys. I don't I don't know why Durham didn't charge Chuck Dolan. Um Maybe, maybe he would have charged Dolan if um, the lie that Danchenko told about Dolan in the Danchenko trial that that charge, if, if that had stuck. But the judge threw that charge out for failure to to prove the charge. Um, I don't know. There's there's got to be a reason. Maybe he'll be asked. Maybe on Thursday during testimony, Durham will be asked why he didn't charge Dolan for this lie right here. I know that would be a question that I would note down as a possibility that I would if I was a representative that was going to be on the committee. That's one of the questions I would have. Um, I mean, I yeah, I, I don't get it. Dolan straight up lied to the special counsel, so I don't know why he isn't charged with a false statement with a 1001, but I trust there's a good reason for it. Dolan is a source for certain information in a steel report. Next part, at least one allegation contained in a steel report dated August 22nd, 2016, which is 2016. One zero five is the report reflected information that Danchenko collected directly from Charles Dolan. In particular, that report detailed the August 2016 resignation of Trump's campaign manager Manafort and his allegedly strained relationship with Corey Lewandowski. The allegation in the Steele report stated, Close associate of Trump explains reasoning behind Manafort's recent resignation. 
Ukraine revelations played part, but others wanted Manafort out for various reasons, especially Lewandowski, who remains influential. Speaking separately, also in late August 2016, an American political figure associated with Donald Trump and his campaign outlined the reasons behind Manafort's recent demise. He or she said it was true that the Ukraine corruption revelations had played a part in this, but also several senior players close to Trump had wanted Manafort out, primarily to loosen his control on strategy and policy formulation. Of particular importance in this regard was Manafort's predecessor as campaign manager Corey Lewandowski, who hated Manafort personally and remained close to Trump and with whom he discussed the presidential campaign on a regular basis. This Steele report contained information that Danchenko had gathered directly from Dolan in response to a specific request. In particular, on August 19, 2016, Danchenko emailed Dolan to solicit any, quote, thought, rumor, or allegation about Paul Manafort. In the email, Danchenko also informed Dolan that he, Danchenko, was working on a project against Trump, quote unquote. Could you please ask someone to comment on Paul Manafort's resignation and anything on Trump campaign? Off the record, of course. Any thought, rumor, allegation? I am working on a related project against Trump. I asked U.S. person two three months ago, but, what, but he didn't say much, although shared a couple of valuable insights. We know who U.S. person two is, I believe. I think I remember identifying him during the Danchenko trial. I'm going to have to look that up. Um... Danchenko referenced U.S. Person 2, a Republican lobbyist and acquaintance of Dolan, who was president at the meeting between Dolan and Galkina in March of 2016 regarding the proposed business venture between K-Global and Servers.com. In connection with a voluntary interview by the office, U.S. Person 2 provided an email, which appears to be referenced by Danchenko above, which stated in part, I have a question about Viktor Yanukovych and Dmitry Firtash. Oh, Dmitry Fertash was just recently in the news, by the way. Uh, former Ukrainian president and former gas oligarch, respectively, and some Russian oligarchs. The relationship is mentioned, for example, here, and it gives an internet address. My question is, my friends in England, in context meaning steel, have heard that a number of oligarchs, including Oleg Deripaska, Suleiman Karimov, and Dmitry Fertash, made certain investments in the U.S. real estate, maybe other sectors, and that then they made various loans or goodwill payments, etc. Coincidentally, in the summer of 2008, just in the run-up to the presidential election, where Mr. Manafort and also Richard Davis, Davis were working for the Republican candidate. Was that the case? What were they trying to achieve? Can these payments, if existed, be viewed as political contributions? I understand it is a sensitive question. I'll be happy to discuss it or other, perhaps more general things, over a coffee at any time. At my end, I'll be happy to share insights on Russia slash FSU. Thanks a lot. Kind regards, Igor. When interviewed by the FBI in September 2017, Steele stated that his initial entree into the U.S. election-related material dealt with Paul Manafort's connection to Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs. In particular... Steele told the FBI that Manafort owed significant money to these oligarchs and several other Russians. At this time, that's true, by the way, that Manafort did owe that money. At this time, Steele was working for a different client, 
Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. Boom, boom. Okay. Remember earlier, the other day when we were reading in this, it was talking, there was some talk about how, and I mean, I think it was a quote from someone else describing Steele as having a particular disdain for the Russians or uh, something like that. And I remember I remarked, they may have been Saturday. I was like, what is, I don't understand this because Steele were, was employed by some Russians. And um, there it is right there. At that time, Steele was working for Oleg Deripaska, who a number of people involved in Spygate were working for. <laughs> and who was a sanctioned and indicted Russian oligarch and swamp creature. He is often referred to in the media as Putin's oligarch. But um, I think the U.S. media, that's a whole other discussion. Never mind. This information comports with Danchenko's inquiries to U.S. Person 2 in April 2016. As mentioned above, U.S. Person 2's name was provided by Steele during his October 2016 interview with the FBI as an individual who would have information regarding Trump's connections to Russia. In any event, on August 19th, on August 19th, Dolan replied to Danchenko, stating in part, Let me dig around on Manafort. Pretty sure the new team wanted him gone ASAP and used, yes, used today's New York Times story to drive a stake in his heart. On August 20th, 2016, Dolan emailed Danchenko the following. Hi, Igor. I had a drink with a GOP friend of mine who knows some of the players and got some of what is in this article, which provides even more detail. She also told me that Corin Lewandowski, who hates Manafort and still speaks to Trump regularly, played a role. He is said to be doing a happy dance over it. I think the bottom line is that in addition to the Ukraine revelations, a number of people wanted Manafort gone. It is a very sharp elbows crowd. Dolan attached to the email a link to a Politico news article that discussed Manafort's resignation as Trump's campaign manager. Later that day, Danchenko replied to Dolan, expressing his appreciation for the information and stating that their, quote, goals clearly coincided with regard to Danchenko's efforts to gather derogatory information about Trump. Almost like there was a plan. Dear Chuck, thank you for this. Any additional insights will be much appreciated. It is an important project for me and our goals clearly coincide. I've been following the Russia trail in Trump's campaign. It is clear it is there, so, so what you read in the news is hardly an exaggeration. Some things are less dramatic, dramatic while others are more than they seem. Dolan replied to Danchenko with the following, Thanks. I'll let you know if I hear anything else. Dolan provided this information regarding Manafort to Danchenko two days before it appeared in the August 22, 2016 Steel Report 2016-105. As reflected above, the information provided by Dolan was substantially the same as the information contained in the Steel Report. In particular, one, Dolan claimed to have received the information from a, quote, GOP friend, whom the Steele report describes as a, quote, close associate of Trump. Two, in his email, Dolan referred to Ukraine revelations about Manafort, which the Steele report also refers to as the Ukraine corruption revelations. And three, Dolan's email stated that a number of people wanted Manafort gone, and the Steele report similarly stated that several senior players close to Trump had wanted Manafort out, or Dolan's email stated that Corey Lewandowski, who hates Manafort and still speaks to Trump regularly, played a role in Manafort's departure. 
and the Steele Report similarly stated that Manafort's departure was due to Corey Lewandowski, who hated Manafort personally and remained close to Trump. When interviewed by the office, Dolan later acknowledged that he never met with a GOP friend in relation to the information that he passed Danchenko, but rather fabricated the information, the fact of the meeting, and his communication with Danchenko. Dolan instead obtained the information about Manafort from public news sources. According to Dolan, he was not aware at the time of the specifics of Danchenko's project against Trump or that Danchenko's reporting would later appear in the Steele reports. Dolan agreed that the information about Manafort contained in Steele Report 2016-105 appeared to be based on the information he provided to Danchenko. Dolan, however, denied that he had knowingly provided any additional information to Danchenko that appeared in the Steele Reports, but acknowledged that it was possible that he could have been an unwitting source for the reports. Nevertheless, as discussed below, Dolan appears to have had access to substantially similar information to that which would later appear in the steel in other steel reports as well. And that makes for a good stopping point. Bone slop. Thank you for the rumble rant. They say I've been following your Durham analysis and have become a fan. Please keep hovering that cursor over the text so we can find all the, I don't know exactly what that symbol means, but I understand what you're saying. Um, it does help when I highlight on screen what I'm pointing out. So yeah, I'll try to remember to keep doing that. And thanks again for the rant. Okay, guys, we are stopping on page 153. So we got through 30 pages and, uh, we'll pick up right here on this Kalugan allegation part. When I come back to stream on Wednesday, um, yeah, let's do that's, that's going to be it right there. Page 153 is where we're stopping. Okay. The finger cursor. Okay, I get I get you. I get you. Yeah, I'll keep I'll try to remember to keep uh doing that when I get to a important part or whatever to, to help highlight what it is I'm looking at so y'all can follow along. Um I think it's hilarious that there's so many people interested in this um i'm sure there's not as many people interested in me doing this as usually watch my show when i'm going over you know an assortment like you know like a half dozen articles or something i'm sure my viewership is going to take a hit in other words like straight up that's going to be true i'm going to not there's not as many there's a lot of nerds in this crowd but there's not so many that are interested in just me doing this but this is what we're going to do um we are Actually, let me go back to my streaming page. I want to show you something. We are, if you look at the where the cursor is, we're about halfway through. We're a little over halfway through um, this document, right? There's 316 pages. We're on page 163. So we're right at around the halfway point of this. And um, we're going to keep going all the way through the end. And I'm I'm really excited about it. And when we get done through all of this, we're all going to know so much more about the Durham investigation and what all he found. And I think it'll help us in viewing subsequent news reports and um, we'll just be better informed. And uh, 
myself along with you guys. So I'm going to keep doing this. I'm really enjoying it and I'm getting a lot out of it. I hope you guys are too. I'll be um, added, adding more to my threads. I added a little bit more to my thread yesterday um, on True Social and on Twitter. And I'm going to keep adding to them. And one of the things I thought about with the long thread is that one of my goals with it or one of my hopes for it is that if people search on Twitter for certain things related to Durham's investigation and Spygate and Russiagate, that if they search terms that are um, from the Durham report, they'll find my thread or they'll find that relevant tweet in my thread and then that'll open the whole thread for them. So it just, it's just a way to search for stuff from the Durham report without actually pulling up the Durham report. That's what I'm hoping anyway. And it, it's also functioning as note taking for me anyway. So you guys have a great Monday. I'll be live on Wednesday morning. And then after that, I'll be have to switch to a summer schedule. Um, because I'll have my kids on Friday morning because uh, my youngest will be done with school. And I'm guessing my Friday, my summer schedule will be going back to evenings. Um, I'm trying to decide exactly what time last year I did 9.30 p.m. shows is when we started. And um, we'll see about that. The The thing about it is that I'm, I'm on Badlands on Wednesday night, so that won't work. Um. We'll see. I'm trying to figure out exactly how I'm going to do a summer schedule. But um, God bless y'all. Have a uh, have a wonderful, wonderful day. I'll see y'all Wednesday morning. Remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. See ya.